the Bones and Bobbins podcast is now on Patreon. Would you like Yay! access to bonus episodes, digital extras, exclusive merch, and more? Join uh-huh. us in the Curiosity Shop at patreon.com backslash Bones and Bobbins. Your generous support helps make the show happen and will also earn you our very, very eternal gratitude and entry into our private Patreon-only Facebook group. Which is super fun. And also has witch bottles. Yes. Which you're going to hear a lot more about, even though I've babbled about them every episode since we talked about them first, I think. so. Possibly. Maybe. I'm not sorry. Neither am I. But you're going to be sorry Sweet. if you don't join. In a dusty old shop on a forgotten old street, you'll find two witches with books three boxes deep. Next to rusty old needles and faded red thread, you'll come in for yarn, but leave with pigments instead. Whether poisons or patterns, we're always discreet. Where creepy and crafty and morbidity meet. Welcome to the Bones and Bobbins podcast. Uh, so, hello, morbid makers. We are your slightly creepy, mildly disconcerting, somewhat sinister, delightfully discomposed, opaquely odd, Merely morbid. Marvelously misanthropic hosts. And this is Bones and Bobbins, Season 1, Episode 13, When Witches Were Waltzing. I'm Haley from Red Handled Scissors and the Very Serious Crafts Podcast. Hi, I'm Natalie from Uber Dark Designs, an official murderino maker. Fancy, fancy. Fun, fun. Yes, indeed. So, hi. Hi. How you doing? Uh, good, I think. It's It's been a weird several days in the world. Yeah, it, it really weird. has. It really has. Yeah, but uh, that's why we're hanging out and recording a podcast. To not have to doom scroll on Twitter. So, uh, yes. how are you? Good, good, good. We uh, had to take a trip down to the Milwaukee area. Uh, my dad needed to get an MRI, and my mom doesn't drive. So ah. so we went down there, and uh, it was kind of fun because you know, we hadn't seen my parents in a long time, and we've been quarantining and everything, so uh, yeah, keeping it safe. But we also got to visit our pumpkin cart, which we would oh, get yay. pumpkins from every – it's this cart that the farmer drops off in this, like, little field on a corner in the middle of nowhere for some reason um but we always get our pumpkins there and every year i take a picture of the girls there so we got to do that and then um the on our trip uh grace bought herself a little deck of tarot cards and a book on how to read tarot and uh on our our trip back we were talking and uh Haley uh has been talking about um I'm going into criminology, and she's taking a class and everything. And Not me, Grace. Haley. Her daughter, Haley. <laughs> That's true. My youngest. Uh, and Grace has always wanted to go into something uh, medical. And initially, she wanted to be a pediatric neonat- neonatologist. 
but she's been looking at, at at different medical things and on the ride home I almost pulled over and squeed because she's like, Mom, I'm thinking about maybe being a mortician. It'd be really cool if, you know, Haley's doing forensic science and criminology and I could be her mortician. It would be really cool. I mean, Uh, it it is really neat. I've been looking at that myself just for fun um, because it would be really funny to add Undertaker to my business card. Right. Um, But... So I, I know all of the requirements and um, and stuff like that because I, before the pandemic started, I was all ready to just go ahead and um, become a mortician. And it didn't happen, obviously. But my favorite part of it, I think, was that you weren't required to be on in the New York City campus for most of the program but you were required to be there in person for a two-week embalming workshop nice because apparently you cannot learn to embalm remotely (laughs) don't try this at home kids no no so that's exciting i I like it immediately sent her a million links most of them regarding the Order of the Good Death and Caitlin and all of her work. I feel as though Caitlin was probably yes, involved. Yes, yes, I pulled out. I my... say as though I know her. Yeah. I do not. <laughs> pulled I out. Want to. Right? Oh, oh my goodness, that would be that's dream guests. I think for podcast that would be amazing. Yeah. Uh, I am in one of I'm uh, part of her Patreon, and there's one level that gets a gets to be in a um, secret Instagram account with her and so I feel like I know her because I see all of these like daily life videos where she's talking to that particular tier of patrons but oh she's definitely definitely my mortician crush same same so, uh, so I sent her all of that, and I said, also, you know, look into maybe being a medical examiner. I'm like, that's you know another option as well. So, so she's mm-hmm. going, so she's going down some research lanes for that. So I'm like, I'm pretty proud. Well, and also, I'm not sure in your area, do they still have the coroner system, um, or do you have medical examiners? Because there are a lot of reasonably rural places in the U.S who don't actually require medical doctors who have coroners instead, which is all kinds of fucked up. Um, No offense if you're a coroner and are good at your job. Like, that's cool. (laughs) But if you're a coroner and aren't good at your job, that's a problem. Hugely problematic. Um, But yeah, so that's the news on my end. My children are uh, apparently planning on us just having our own true crime life the rest of <laughs> the rest oh, of good. be fine be good good i i'm very happy to <laughs> to be experiencing the beginning of of this obvious series of murder mystery novels right <laughs> right 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 yes yes grace was like and if Haley gets hurt in combat i'm like we need hurt in combat <laughs> she's like you know when she's you know out there trying to solve stuff at night when she's off duty and she gets hurt 
come and I could give her stitches. And I was like, wow, what kind of movies oh, you can have learn I been watching? How to suture anyway. I could teach him how to suture. <laughs> I know how to stitch. I'm like, that I could do. Um, but mm-hmm. I just think it's, it's adorable that they're trying to figure out how to tandem career their lives together. <laughs> I think that that is really sweet, and it makes me very pleased. So, on a similar subject of families being creepy, um, (laughs) last week sometime, I want to say, my mom texted me just out of nowhere, zero context, and... It was a photo of a headstone that was a bench. (laughs) And it just, and she followed it with, when I die, I want a bench, not a headstone. Full stop. So we had not been (laughs) conversing before this. And my response, obviously, was, you got it. Because, I mean... She can have a bench if she wants a bench. Right. Fine. There you go. And then right after I said that came a picture of her actual funeral plot. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, Mom, I, I know. All of our family is sort of in the same area in the small town, like a one square mile town. Nice. Where they grew up so it's not like i i've seen it i know (laughs) i have an update i just recalled so remember like i think it was our first episode how i was talking about how we did the um the photo shoot in the cemetery and how i I was like we we have a decent size i mean it's a small town but yeah i didn't i found the cemetery (laughs) yeah so i'm no longer like what the heck where is it and it's tucked Actually, they're not, hiding their dead. Well, it's not far from Grace's school. I mean, it's not far from where we are in the mm-hmm. town, but it is tucked out of nowhere. So it's not like you, you know, randomly drive past it. But I was like, I found that. So there's a little update in case anybody well, was worried about goodness. what we were doing with our dad. Um, I mean, I was making up some interesting stories. Me too. Me too. And honestly, maybe they're just all getting cremated. And uh, you can true. just store them most anywhere. Uh, I also noticed that we do drive past on the on the the large trek. I never noticed, and I don't know why, but uh, there's like a random crematorium off the main freeway. It's just a little building, and I'm like, all right. It's and it's near. It's not far from Spring Green, um, which is you know, of course, we're house on the rock and and such Mm -hmm. but yeah just a crematorium i'm like all right i've never noticed that sign before well in some places they have to like um licenses for crematoriums are different than funeral home uh opera uh licenses to operate i would imagine they are different businesses not all of them really um many of them it's i think it's state to state but or maybe county to county even but so um cremation services are often completely separate from other death services which i think is interesting and i probably learned that from 
Caitlin Dowdy's book, <laughs> uh, The one? Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Oh, I haven't read that one yet. I uh, Oh, it's good. I do have, and I am passing off to, to Grace. Will, will my cat eat my eyeballs? <laughs> oh, I just got the, um, the new paperback of that, and it's adorable. Yeah. Yep, yep. Yes. Um, so we've turned this podcast into a Caitlin Dowdy <laughs> fan podcast. Yes, we have. Oh, my It was goodness. inevitable. It's fine. Yes. But anyway, so <laughs> in case you were wondering where either your kids or me uh, got the weird creepy, clearly our parents. Right, right, right. Yeah. They're doing great. And frankly, I am very excited to go pick out my mom's bench with her because Lord knows she's going to have opinions. Oh, yes. (laughs) And I don't want her haunting me because I didn't get the right bench. Right. Oh, my goodness. Nope. Nope. She's going to pick out that thing. I am not messing around with that. Anyway. (laughs) Yay. Now that we've uh, planned my my mom's interment. Well, you know, it is October, so. It is true. It is a an appropriate month to discuss death. Not that that stopped us any other month, but. I was going to say. You know. Mm. <laughs> you know. Yes, yes. That is, that is fair. Now's probably um, a good time to take a quick little break and thank all of our fantastic Curiosity Shop members over on oh, Patreon. Yeah. And I would like to give, we would like to give, a mm-hmm. totally normal, not at all creepy welcome to our newest member, Casey. Hi, Casey. You're the best. And we would totally go explore hidden old graveyards like the one that Natalie finally found in her town. <laughs> yeah. With you. I'd Bonus even go points first. if it's in the woods. Yes. Yeah. I would totally go first fine. and um and I would not be scared at all. I think I should go first since you know ghosts. Ghosts. Also you you you've the big dick energy. <laughs> You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, I also used to kickbox. Fun fact. Nice. Uh, Grace's, she, they get to choose. I, her school is so wonderfully weird, especially for a private school. Uh, they get to choose their, uh, their gym class. Mm-hmm. And uh, it contains things like silks, tightrope walking. Uh, silks? Yeah. Cool. There's a lot of basically it's like that a little circus That seems like a arts, lot of insurance. Right? There's like a little circus art section. Uh, but she is this time right now she's taking martial arts. Um oh, and it is by a retired cop from Chicago. <laughs> and I love it already. At, at the end of the class, he teaches them how to fall asleep and take an effective 10-minute nap. <laughs> because apparently when you're working long beats in Chicago, that was an important life skill to have and he's like once college comes and you got classes and stuff, so she's learning wrong. how to kick somebody's ass and take a 10-minute nap after. I think that's a very reasonable combination of things. I mean, you got to rest up. Right. What if you've got to kick somebody else's ass? Exactly. Exactly. You get a little 10-minute breather in there and you're good to go, you know? Oh, yeah. Important and, life uh, skills. They are. All very important life skills. Yes. 
All right, so because this is the first of our October episodes, and of course it would be episode 13, completely Whoa. by accident, yes. yeah, um, we are going to talk about the history of Samhain and Halloween and then move that into some witchy skills and a telephone call. And, and, and calling from beyond. <laughs> the witches, they have something to say. That's the wrong kind of witch bells. We're not to you yet. Have you seen that Simpsons episode where the doorbell rings? Who is it? Witches. <laughs> anyway. Okay, so before we talk about witchcraft crafts, <laughs> um, let's jump into the history that surrounds a lot of what we do with regards to Halloween and also spiritual practices related to the supernatural. Yay. All right, so... Some of you may know that one of the eight pagan festivals that are still celebrated today uh, is called Samhain, which takes place around November 1st, um, but for all intents and purposes, Halloween. And uh, Samhain is about... 3,000 years old, Ooh. and, um, oh, I should just say, Samhain is the one that is spelled S-A-M-H-A-I-N, if you were wondering. <laughs> it's not Samhain? Because, um, no, because, uh, Gaelic. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's reasonable. Not everybody would would know how to say that. I certainly didn't before oh. I heard somebody else say it. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So, um, Samhain is the Gaelic festival that marks the end of the harvest season. So, bringing in the last harvest of the year. And it began about 3,000 years ago in Ireland's Celtic tribes. And in modern day pagan practices, I think some people in the Southern Hemisphere celebrate it around May 1st because that's the start of the fall season in the Southern Hemisphere. Huh? So it's, I could not find a whole lot of information about that. And since we're all sort of internet connected. I wonder if that may not be as common now, but I did take note of it in my research and thought it was kind of interesting. So how did Samhain work? Enter the Druid priests, because you know that the Druid priests had to get in on this, um, as it literally comes from them. So, Samhain is seen as a liminal time, um, a time that is 
between summer and winter, a time that is between worlds, neither here nor there. And so the Celts believed that at this time, the veil between the living world and the dead was at its thinnest, um, much like Halloween lore says mm-hmm. now, um, and that the souls of the dead could freely go back and forth between realms at that time. And it was specifically believed that those who had died in the previous year would walk the earth one last time on that night. And so the dead returning on that night weren't necessarily pleased. And so there were methods that were created to prevent harm and to keep them from staying around and causing trouble. And the Fae are also involved in the Samhain roaming, but I don't know enough about that to risk pissing them off by talking about it. Because you don't fuck fuck with the the Fae. (laughs) You just don't. It's a rule. Um, so, so they're doing their thing. I don't know what the thing is, and I'm, I have no opinion on it. Um, (laughs) in order to not have to deal with the more unpleasant aspects of spirits that were not pleased, offerings were brought to the edges of villages, and that often included foods and sweets. Uh, yo, trick or treating, um, <laughs> to draw the dead, and um, also to draw earth spirits and the fae away from the village. People would also at this time dress in costumes and go door to door trading like verses or performances. Um, it's called mumming, ah. for those of you who are familiar, um, mumming and guising then they might be given food for their performance. And part of the costuming was also to theoretically hide their identity from any spirits or entities that might want to play tricks on them or do them harm. Gotcha. And so costumes, that is, that is where that comes from. And I, I should mention here that because Samhain is so old and because the history, especially of the time that I'm talking about, is so long ago, we are working mostly with folklore and piecing together pieces of known history here. N- None of this is necessarily exactly what was happening because we don't have those primary sources. So we're just going with the traditions that have remained and Mm -hmm. the traditions that remained up to the introduction of Christianity. And then there was recording of the issues related to people still holding on to those old beliefs. So if you happen to know other stories, I think this is a yes and situation. 
because nobody really, really knows. It's everyone's best educated guess here. While they were dressing in their costumes and performing for people in trading foods in celebration of the harvest, bonfires were also being lit to thank the gods for the harvest, and they were hoping to please them enough to ensure that the sun and long days would return again after the winter, Mm -hmm. because it was thought that these earth spirits were controlling the change of seasons and the change of weather and that by gaining their favor you would get a better harvest the next year and if you didn't then you had done something to offend them and so at this time blood sacrifices were also made on these bonfires but that's not as weird and dramatic as it sounds because this was the last harvest this was the time when everybody was putting things away for winter use Uh. and so animals were being slaughtered and stored for food for the winter so it it wasn't just random it and it was thought that it was thought that earth had given the celts her life in bountiful harvest and in gratitude they would in turn offer back that life force ah seen as blood and so like i get that and vegan me shudders because yeah but also it makes a lot of sense i understand how you would get to there and it's not like in that context it isn't creepy it isn't sinister right you're not like sacrificing the blood of a virgin it's you know no i mean it may have been a virgin animal but (laughs) but (laughs) yes um but in this case, it makes a whole lot of sense that that would happen. It isn't some sort of mysterious druid rite. It yeah. is a very straightforward returning this life to the earth which gave it. Yep. Like, that that makes complete sense to me. Um, and a fun fact related to these blood sacrifices... Uh, Yes, there is a fun fact. Druids would apparently read the burnt remains of the sacrifices like tea leaves. And the divination included upcoming deaths and forthcoming prosperity. And Samhain was seen as the best night to do that because the veil was the thinnest it would be. And the spirits that were able to come back, for reasons somewhat unclear to me, it was thought that they might have answers to these very pressing questions. The spreading of these stories and divinations and predictions may have 
been the root of what would later be telling ghost stories. Okay. Because that is what it was. I, I think that there are lots of other things that that could stem from, but it, it may have contributed to it. But thankfully and now so, we don't need a burnt goat carcass to do so. <laughs> no, not unless I guess you're eating a goat. Um, I would know nothing about that, so <laughs> can't weigh in. Um, so why was Samhain so important? Like, why did they go to all this trouble? So the end of the harvest obviously meant that you now had all of the food that you were going to have until the next planting season began. There was no way to get more. And so winter, depending on your food stores and how your animals had been doing and availability of feeding grounds and whether or not you had decent weather, all of that played a huge role in whether or not you would literally have enough food to survive the winter. Because you were facing your own mortality, the celebration was both a real effort to please these deities that you think are controlling all of these things, um, but also a concrete action that could be taken to make sure your family would have a better chance of surviving until spring. Yeah. And so it makes a lot of sense that this is both like a thankful celebration and also kind of dark. Yeah. Um, so now we're going to sort of wander our way into the transition between Samhain and what we now know as Halloween. Enter the Romans. <laughs> because pretty much everywhere in history, that happens at some point. So around 50 BCE, when the Romans conquered much of Northern Europe, they brought along with them Pomona, which was also a harvest celebration that was happening right around the same time, also around November 1st. And in celebration of Pomona, um, who was the goddess of gardens and fruits, there was a lot of partying and dancing and trading of foods and being thankful, and it was a similar vibe to the more celebratory aspects of Samhain. And so it sort of naturally began to, like those traditions naturally began to mix because mm -hmm. they were honoring the dead and giving thanks for the harvest. Right. And so I'm sure that there was an awful lot of drama that came before there was a mix. Yeah. And I'm sure it wasn't pleasant. Oh, no. But I also don't... I did not find very much specific information on that. So... <sighs> then 
Christianity. Oh, of course. <laughs> so before Christianity, the Western world, as we've discussed, was largely dominated by people who worshipped nature. So pagans. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as early Christians tried to convert pagan populations to Christianity, suddenly things that had long been worshipped as forces of nature were labeled as evil and against God. Which, like, what the fuck? Wasn't God supposed to have created all that? Right. Like but that. nobody asked me. You shall um, so, who's the motherfucker who, uh, <laughs> who caused this trouble? Well, let me tell you. Early 4th century, Constantine. Ugh, Constantine. The emperor of Rome, who was also a pagan. Apparently, he quite suddenly converted to Christianity because he thought he saw a vision of Christ on a battlefield. So, my humble opinion is that perhaps he should have checked to see if he was hallucinating from dehydration or... (laughs) Or, right. you know, too much wine. bad food. I, yeah, also, too much wine. The Romans were certainly known for that. But, I don't know. Whatever the case, Constantine was sold. He was there for this whole Christianity thing. So, with the conversion of the Roman emperor, out went the Christian missionaries. Unsurprisingly, the pagan people who Constantine's missionaries were trying to convert weren't terribly interested in giving up their century-old traditions. And so largely, they just didn't. And the missionaries largely were just like, eh. (laughs) And so, at this point, the Pope got involved. Because there's a pope now. Okay. Yes. So around 600 CE, Pope Gregory I made a plan to just consecrate whatever thing, like a tree or a lake or whatever, that random groups of pagans were worshipping, thereby dedicating that thing to Christ. And he thought that might solve the problem. Because they could continue to worship, and the Pope could feel good in knowing that the thing that they were worshiping was a consecrated worship space dedicated to God. That's slightly sneaky. It is sneaky, but also, all right. Like, that doesn't hurt anybody. Right, right. No bloodshed. Like, that's that's Like, you you do that. That's kind of diplomatic. Sneaky and diplomatic. The pagans weren't really having it, though, is the thing. (laughs) And so, I guess the idea of refraining from the enjoyable activities and important traditions in their current lives so that they could have good lives later in heaven seemed kind of dumb. 
And it, it, yeah, it seems kind of dumb. I don't disagree. And so the papacy, having had little success, um, by the 8th century CE, Pope Gregory III, now, um, decided that if the pagans wouldn't chill with the whole Samhain thing, that he would just have to turn that day into a Christian holy day, claiming November 1st as All Saints Day, a day that honored Christian saints who didn't already have a dedicated day of their own. And All Saints Day is also known as All Hallows Day because hallow means saint. Uh-huh. Like, think hallowed ground. Yep. Enter Halloween, the word, not the celebration. The night before All Hallows Day became All Hallows Evening, which changed through time to Hallows Eve and then to Halloween. Just because, you know, when people speak, vernaculars change, yeah. it just is. The church at this point, was really, really, really trying to absorb Samhain into All Hallows' Day. But some pagans, even if they had converted, so maybe former pagans, still didn't really want to give up their centuries-old traditions of, like, local traditions of dressing in costumes and leaving food offerings for the dead— And so, in addition to celebrating the saints, they continued their more traditional celebrations, too. Mm -hmm. And honestly, that's where I would have stopped, were I the papacy. But in the 10th century, the church upped its game, creating Mm. All Souls Day on November 2nd, trying to make a concrete Christian day for honoring the dead from the past year eliminating, in their eyes, any reason to celebrate Samhain. But people just did both. (laughs) Yeah. And so, at this same time, unsurprisingly, witches became the bee in the church's pagan bonnet. Of course. Yeah. And so, which... The word likely comes from the old English word for wise one, which is Wicca. Mm. And we're not talking about that Wicca. That Wicca is a religion and a very different thing. But um, uh, tangentially related, certainly. Similar roots. Anyway, witches. They were usually women. The Christian church was a sausage party. (laughs) And so Christians didn't dislike witches because they didn't think they were real. They didn't like them because they knew they were very much real and that wielding feminine power was seen to this male-dominated church as dark and dangerous and scary and evil. And, you know, reasons. (laughs) Yeah, so allowing women to continue carrying on the practices of Samhain 
really wouldn't do. Spoiler alert. <clears throat> we all know what happens next. <laughs> I'm really not going to go into the the inquisitions and such like that is for a different a different podcast a different day mm-hmm. um but in the end stomping out those those old Samhain traditions never really worked completely um obviously as we are currently in the spooky season we are and witches never really went away either so that there will always is... be wise women. Indeed. And that is at least the uh, the short version. And I know <laughs> that that is funny since I've been babbling on for at least half an hour um, of how Samhain got to Halloween. Um, but Samhain is also still specifically celebrated today and i personally am a witch and celebrate Samhain. yay you know and halloween best of both worlds why not yeah all right that's awesome so i'm yeah. gonna talk- sorry about the history drop <laughs> no that's what we're that's what we're about it's uh, true we and- are a history podcast <laughs> yeah uh and i'm gonna pick up that witch and I'm going to run with it. Oh, oh, oh are you? <laughs> and I'm going to talk about some... Wait, am I the witch you're picking up and running with? <laughs> then I'm kidnapping you. Uh, eh, whatever. <laughs> nope, I am going to talk about witchcraft crafts. Yes. Uh, and I'm going to start out with witch bells. Yes. So oh, what are they? Well, hmm. the use of bells is found actually in many religions besides those related to witchcraft, including oh, yeah. Buddhism, Hinduism, uh, Japanese Shinto, many, many sects of Christianity. Um, and while the purpose and meanings of bells kind of vary wildly amongst these different traditions, it's generally recognized that the ringing of a bell communicates a message of some kind whether to the participants in the religion or to the entities in the spirit world. Uh-huh. And it's for the second purpose that a witch bell is used. Now, yeah. there's a more old-fashioned term that you will probably come across, and <laughs> that is called devil driver. Mm-hmm. So their sound also marks an energetic change as well. Uh, there's something kind of sim- about the, like, the simple ringing of a bell that just changes like the energy of a space. Right. So how are these bells used? Well, not all Wiccan traditions consider the bell to be a core ritual tool, but here are some ways that uh, witch bells are used. Uh, One is to cleanse the energy of a space. So ringing a bell uh, is thought to attract good energy and repel negative energy. Um, so they do it before, and it's done before and after rituals, or uh, yep. they use one to clear or charge crystals, herbs, and other items used in ritual spell work. Uh, mm-hmm. However, there's many practitioners who also keep a bell on their altar, and they use it in their former rituals. And which, in this case, the bell is usually left on the left side of the altar, where tools representing the goddess are found. 
And in most traditions... In Wiccan culture. Right, right, right. Specifically Wiccan. Um, And it's associated with the element of air, though some also attribute it to water because the sound waves kind of ripple out like you'd picture waves. Yeah. Uh, In the ritual, the bell may be used to invoke a spirit ally, the goddess, and or the elements... Spirits Mm -hmm. of the dead have also been associated with bells in the form of funeral bells, which is a long-held tradition that spans the globe. Uh, And if you wish to summon the spirits of a specific person, there's some uh, cultures that have a dedicated bell to communicate with them. Uh, Now, instead of invoking spirits, witch bells may also be used to banish spirits. Mm -hmm. Uh, So during or on Samhain... Uh, people rang bells to banish evil spirits. Uh, the sound of bells were thought to banish bad spirits because they can't be near their beautiful sound. And that's why the bells were some kind, sometimes called devil drivers. Another use of rich bells is to seal magic. Some will ring it after casting the circle to seal the energy within, while others will ring it after releasing the circle to disperse any remaining energy. It can mm-hmm. also be used to mark different sections of a longer ritual, um, such as the end of invocations, the beginning of the main body of the ritual. Also, Catholics like to ring that shit before communion. Uh, I remember that part. <laughs> bells, <Yeah>. are, <laughs> bells are also make a lovely way to seal like different kinds of spell work. So outside of ritual, many Wiccans specifically like to hang one on the front door to guard their homes. Yeah, and that's what I think of when I think of witch bells. And I think that's probably what most practicing witches are thinking of when they're talking about witch bells as a phrase. Right. Um, So to celebrate the holidays, uh, again, they were connected to Saturnalia, which is a winter solstice, and also Yule in many cultures. Uh, Ringing of the bells are thought to bring back the sun. Outside of rituals, uh, again, protection uh, by the front door. Bells can guard doors in your home, and that's inside the home as well. In ancient Europe, or ancient Rome, sorry, not Europe, Rome, because Romans, people hung tiny (laughs) bells and wing chimes called tintinabulum on the gates uh, gates of their homes and temples. These bells were sometimes found hanging from the figure of a man with a huge erect phallus. Because why not? Which was thought to magically (laughs) wield off the evil eye. Because Romans, Romans, you and your statues. Speaking of big dick energy. Right? Uh, So you can enchant bells to to be your protectors to bring cheer to your home every time they ring. You mm-hmm. can also erect a figure of a man with a huge uh, phallus outside your door and hang him from there if you really want to rock that look, you know? Whatever I mean, works for you. I am in the process of making witch bells for my door. Nice. Like, as part of a protection spell. And I gotta say, I was gonna go with a pentacle. There you go. But now I'm seriously considering a big old dick. (laughs) Just a giant dick. Ah, good times. Uh, I mean, it's New York City. Nobody will even notice. (laughs) Uh, Another uh, use of bells uh, in is tonal healing. 
So bells, that's cool. Yeah. So bells create a vibration, which again is a form of energy. And because everything uh, vibrates, bells have resonated with people for a millennia. In ancient Greece, 100 CE, the ringing of Sistra, which are like symbols, uh, was even thought to dispel disease. In Book 5 of Moralia, Plutarch said, the sound of these Sistra averts and drives away typhoid or typhoid fever. <laughs> so, you know, you start getting a sick, just ring the bells. Uh, total healing is if also only. right. Thought to clear away energetic blockage. So, again, you know, just like you're clearing a space or, you know, or protecting the outside, the same could be done on human. So, you want to has bells? Um, in, <laughs> in the, in yes, the, I do want to has bells. <laughs> in, the, in the show notes, I've got a link to a YouTube video that will show you how to make your own bells. Um, you can also find witch bells in a variety of Wiccan and New Age shops on Etsy, which that is a dangerous to your bank account dive, or oh, even yes. on eBay. They range mm-hmm. in appearance from plain and simple to some or like amazing ornately decorated ones. The main thing that you want to consider, though, when you are purchasing a bell is the sound of the bell, which kind of makes it tricky if you're trying to buy them online, but we're in a pandemic. Uh, so when you find your bell, you want to spend some time holding it in your hands and pay attention to the physical sensations in your body as you do. And then you're going to ring it gently and kind of note how that changes and use the sensory information to kind of guide you as you decide how and when you're going to use it. Um, and the bell is one tool that will truly speak to you if you're willing to quiet your mind and listen. Mm-hmm. Also, if you take a quick search on Pinterest, it will give you approximately 3,497,000 things on uh, that you can make to bless your, on how to bless and make your own witch bells to protect your domicile. But again, uh, you can just check out the video to making a basic one that I put in the show notes. Yay. So bells. Ooh, yep. Maybe I should make a video. So you should. So that's a quick trip down witch bell lane, um, which again, it's kind of, there's, it was There's one, a lot. There is a lot, and I tried to kind of pack it in. Uh, but there is a little chunk that um, I seem to have not put in my own notes, but there is a chunk uh, where the lovely Catholic Church uh, tried using it, using bells to ward off witches, which clearly was ineffective. Um, but it was also just silly. So, um, but yeah, so bells have been around for a long time. And if you think about it, there is... It's interesting that 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 it is used in so many different practices across so many different continents, you know? Oh, yeah. I, I think pretty much every population and especially every spiritual practice incorporates some variety of bells. Yes. I mean, yes, maybe yes, not, yes. but it. I can't think of one that doesn't. Exactly. Neither can I. So, uh, along the same lines of Samhain and the making of witchcrafts, I'm going to take a quick little trip down uh, and talk about corn dollies. I'm excited about this one. So, corn dollies are a pan-European element of old harvest traditions from as far (laughs) west as the UK. 
to Scandinavia in the north and then various Slavic countries in the east. There is a difference between corn dollies or corn witches or corn hags, which I'm talking about now, versus corn husk dolls that indigenous people create. I'm going to touch on yes. that a little bit. But most of this is going to be about the corn dollies um, from the European element uh, because that is that's my story to tell. The other one is not. Um, so mm -hmm. in pre-industrialized, pre-Christianized Europe, uh, back in the lovely pagan days, uh, it was believed that the female spirit of the grain lived in the fields with the crops. Uh, and once all the crops were brought sure, in, right, <laughs> once all the crops were brought in, she no longer had a home. And so the last. Shit. Yeah. So we we took her life and now she has no home. <laughs> So the last sheaves were reaped in a ritual and used to make a corn dolly to embody and honor her spirit. She was hmm. kept warm and in a safe place of honor in the home all winter. And then in the coming spring, she would be tilled into the earth to infuse the new crops with her generous spirit of fertility. This spirit, depending on the culture, uh, is called by many different names. Uh, grandmother, old woman, corn maiden, uh, corn, rye, barley, or oat mother, Carlin or Karlach. I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, nope, that's not right. It'd be Kalech in Scotland. I will be, I will butcher yet another language here. Sorry about that. <laughs> no French this time around. Uh, Baba in Poland and Bohemia. And then sometimes old man or grandfather, um, but predominantly feminine. Uh, the spirit may be old or young, benign or malignant, uh, which, you know, good or evil. Uh, whoever was the one to cut the last sheaf uh, bound or was bound up in them and was paraded with them through the streets to be delivered home. And then depending on attitudes toward the corn spirit, this might be considered an honor or a burden. Uh, in the Celtic traditions, the female spirit of the divine, which is Kelech, which is Gaelic for hag, the sacred ancient mother lived in the harvest. She was born anew each spring or every hundred years in some stories. Again, it's one of those things where things get handed down folklorically and not a huge accurate record. Right. Uh, but it matures with the seasons, renewing herself over and over again. And some villages made a game of her corn dolly, you know, like hot potato. The first farmer to get all the grain, his grains harvested would make the corn dolly from the last of his crop, and then he'd toss it into a neighbor's field who hadn't finished his harvest yet. Now, just a side note, if I was that female <laughs> like spirit, I'd get a little pissed off. You're just chucking me into somebody else's yard. But, you know, that's just Just me. to taunt them? Right. So then he'd toss it into mm. a neighbor's field who hadn't finished his harvest yet, and this corn dolly would just get passed along until the last farmer to get all his crops in was stuck with her for the winter. Some villages would ah. dress her to resemble the spirit and burn her to honor the death of summer and thank her for her harvest. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that I've said corn multiple times. Um, and when, so when we, when we say corn now, we think of, you know, the yellow, juicy, on a cob, uh, but that's not what I mean. So corn or maize, as we think of it now, is native to Central and Northern America. And it would not have been a major grain or crop even in Europe until after they began to, you know, fucking colonize North America. 
in the early t- 16th century <sighs> and yes. yeah, the transatlantic trade routes opened up. So the word corn actually comes from the same word for grain. So the word corn um, used in Eastern Europe would have been colloquially used to refer to whatever grain the crop was in any given area. Oh, so, like cereal. Yeah. So wherever you lived, corn could have meant oats or barley or rye or wheat. And we, but what we refer to as corn today originally started as being called Indian corn by fucking colonizers because it was a major crop here. And, you know, we just dropped the Indian part because, you know, why not take everything from them? And thus we have <laughs> corn as we think of it today. So, again, uh, original European corn dollies or corn mothers were made from wheat, barley, rye, or oats, and then sometimes very intricately woven. So, yeah, some of them are beautiful. Some of them are amazing. Some of them are dyed different colors. Right. Mm -hmm. So, Pinterest will show you how to make quite a few of them. Um, It is difficult when you do look because they do, there's a lot of people that, mistake them with corn husk dolls which is a very different tradition amongst indigenous people and those were actual dolls that they would play with and there's a lot more a lot of different meanings so um it's kind of hard to decipher the differences when you do look up how to make one but you can make some pretty fun ones and some you know some would actually be used as centerpieces proudly displayed on on the table during mealtime and and it was it's it's kind of neat like every so every family that celebrates say christmas you know they all have their own little traditions that go along with it and i think that that is something that every holiday has probably had since the dawn of time every family has different ways of doing things in any day-to-day life so it would it would stand to reason they would also have different differences in in how they celebrate it um, so how they treated their corn hag or corn witch or corn mother or, you know, corn pain in the ass that you're tossing over the fence. Um, it would vary depending on who the family was. But that is, that is a, a little little fun, a little thing about, uh, you know, corn dollies. Yeah, I feel like that's also another one of those things that there are a million right ways to make them and right. everyone has an opinion. <laughs> right, right. That exactly because and and I did not include a video or anything on that because it's it is much more difficult to navigate and I would rather not navigate and respect than to be like, hey, this is how you do this thing and then offend people because that's the last thing I would want to do. But Yep. Yeah. Exactly. But you can make a doll from corn husks. (laughs) You sure can. And uh, so I'm going to pick up there with creating an altar. And so if you happen to be new to witchcraft or just curious, um, both the corn dolly and the witch bell, the a singular bell, might be part of this altar tradition. So, um, an altar is a specific place that you have that is dedicated to doing spell work. 
it can be a permanent fixture within your living space or it can be something that you can set up and then tuck away when it isn't in use. Um, it can also be an outdoor space or an impromptu area that fits your specific needs at any given time. I, there are a lot of there are a lot of opinions about this and about the correct way to do any of these things. So just to put it in context right now, I am talking or I am speaking from my experience and specifically from European tradition and specifically Germanic traditions. So, you know, your your mileage may vary. Um, <laughs> right. And so once you have decided that you want an altar and have chosen the space for it, if you have a permanent one that's a permanent fixture in your home, like I happen to, um, sometimes you might decorate them in honor of one of the eight pagan Sabbaths, if you happen to be pagan, um, one of which is Samhain, which we were talking about earlier. So you see, it all comes together. <laughs> okay, so elements of an altar. Altars can vary greatly depending on the witch or the needs of that witch, but most of them include a table or a flat surface that can hold the tools that you will be using um, and that can be used as a workspace. You also ideally would like to have the ability to make that space feel sacred, whatever that means to you. And so an altar, just for the record, because I'm going to share what mine both looks like and what it contains, but I want to say that you don't need to have anything fancy. It you only need to have something that works for you. You don't need special tools. You don't need any of the items that I'm going to be talking about because these items are just symbols. And so if what you've got is a cardboard box and some leaves and a tea light, like, cool. Don't feel like you have to have something spectacular in order to have a valid practice. Um, so, like I said, the altar doesn't have to be fancy to be functional. Um, and when setting one up, many earth-focused witches, um, specifically Wiccans, will use a north-facing altar because each cardinal direction also represents an element. So north is earth, south is fire, east is air, and west is water. Um, I am not a Wiccan, and 
I personally have a southeast facing altar because I am an air sign with a fire moon. And also because I live in a shoebox New York City apartment and <laughs> that is the direction that the space that I had available faced. And so, I mean, if I could get behind it, it would be facing north, but I can't <laughs> because walls. So, yeah. So that is another one of those rules that's not really a rule, but might be important to some traditions. Um, on uh, Often, altars across traditions contain tools that represent the four elements so earth air fire and water and then also spirit i personally have a stained glass feather to represent air um, crystals and a beaker of pressed flowers for earth a specific um, candle that is made to burn for a full season so a really big candle um, that represents fire, a beaker of moon water to represent water, and antique glass hands to represent spirit. And spirit can be whatever spirit means to you. And so it can be you. It can, it, let's just say that it, you can get creative in that area. And there are lots of right answers. So there are different kinds of altars and different kinds of altar traditions. I am personally a hedge witch, which means that I can communicate with and between this world and the spirit world. Uh, I am also technically a hereditary witch because those abilities are passed down matrilineally through my family. I am not a Wiccan. Like I've said, um, my practices are spiritual, but I connect with the universe rather than a specific deity. And so there are lots of different kinds of witches. Some witches have witchcraft as part of a spiritual or religious practice. Some don't. And sometimes there are spaces in between. I'm kind of a spaces in between. But there are lots of very specific right answers for different kinds of practices. So I'm just giving you an overview of my personal experience. If you are interested in a different kind of practice or something else resonates with you, you should definitely take a deep dive into all of the different kinds of witches and ways to practice that there Absolutely. are because there are so many so many <clears throat> yeah so uh, like i mentioned earlier um i'm going to talk about european witchcraft traditions largely because that's where my ancestry lies and but i think it is worth noting that there are witchcraft traditions pretty much everywhere in the world and there's a lot of overlap, and there's a lot of sharing, there's a lot of cultural appropriation, mm -hmm. and like all of those things happen 
a lot within the witchcraft and or earth religions worlds. And so often similar or at least recognizable practices will exist in one tradition and feel very familiar to witches from another tradition. Witches, also for the record, can be called many different things. But I'm sticking with witch since that's what I identify as. So, once you've picked out your space for your altar and sorted your life out, I guess, um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, uh, you might want to know what the usual suspects of altar tools are. So, depending on the traditions you follow, your altar might contain other items than the ones I list, or your altar might forego some common items altogether. I personally have the following items on my altar. I have an altar bell, which I use to clear energy in a space and also within a circle and to dismiss energies at the end of a practice. And that's sort of not dissimilar to saying, to making sure you close out the Ouija board. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yes. You want to clear that. And I use almost exclusively bells in my energy clearing process because I am not of indigenous heritage and I do not feel comfortable using sage in my practice even if it isn't white sage and even if I'm not calling it smudging. It just doesn't feel right to me, but bells very much do. And so I have, like I said, an altar bell that is used to clear energy. I have a copper cauldron, a copper chalice, and a copper offering dish because I like copper. I don't know why, it just feels right. And, and that's the most important thing. Right, and that's, that's the thing with making your altar. There's no right answer. If it feels right, it's, it's right. Um, I also have an afame, which is a ceremonial dagger. Um, sometimes it's used for opening and closing circles. Sometimes it's used to symbolically cut something. Mine happens to be stained glass with copper, and the hilt encases a pair of found cicada wings. It's and gorgeous. They, yeah, it's really pretty. <laughs> I, I will link to it in the show notes. Um, and that represents my air sign. Um, I also have a bowline, which is a harvesting knife, and often they are sickle-shaped. Depending on the kind of practice you have, you might use that blade for real, or you might not. I have a real one, it, and it is not sickle-shaped. It's a dagger, and it is an iron dagger, and very, very... I don't know. It looks badass. And I like it. 
and you don't want to fuck with it. And so I personally think it's fine to use my ceremonial blade as it was intended to be used in life. Some people really don't. That is totally up to you. Um, I also have a wand that is made of rowan, uh, which is a wood known for protection and strengthening of power, protecting against negativity, and specifically protecting against negativity when working within the spirit realms. And just a fun fact about rowan trees, their berry has a five-pointed star on it. And ah. so they are, like, if you hear a rowan tree being described as a witch tree, that's why. And that's so, fun. yeah, another common thing that people might have on their altars that I also have is uh, a pentacle. Mine happens to be wooden and has uh, symbolic representations of all of the elements and self. And you can use that for a lot of different things. Sometimes you might put rocks or minerals, crystals within it in different patterns. Like, it can get way complicated. Or it can <laughs> also just be a symbol. And, I mean, sort of the same with everything. It can be complicated or just symbolic. Uh, I also have a small basin broom to sweep away negative energy. Two gazing balls, because I often work with ghosts. And I have candles that are dedicated to specific spells that are not the same as my fire element candle. And approximately one million rock and mineral specimens that represent whatever I'm working on at the time. Because I am a witch, but I'm also a really big science geek. <laughs> which may sound incongruous, but mm -hmm. it is what it is. And my altar has a lot of lab glass on it because of that. And I took a little video of my altar that I will put on our Instagram as a teaser. But so the things that I just listed are sort of the normal things that one might find on an altar. Sometimes, like, you absolutely should add personal items that make your altar really yours. Or some people decorate them for the seasons or decorate them for holidays, which I think is adorable, and I totally love <laughs> it. It is not necessarily my thing, but it is, I like it. And so all of, uh, all of that is to say, when you're setting up your, auth your author, nope, <laughs> <laughs> when you're setting up your altar, do what makes you happy. And absolutely bring in the items that resonate with you. And don't feel like you have to use items that don't. Because you don't. You are in control of both your witchcraft and your altar craft. And so you feeling comfortable 
is the most important thing. Yes. And one more thing about altars before I move on is you may, if you are a witch who moves around, want a travel altar. And I have one of those, and I haven't opened it in a very long time, so I was just poking through it before we started recording. And mine right now contains sea glass to represent water, um, amethyst and citrine for earth. I have a beeswax candle for fire, teeny tiny matches, a teeny tiny basin broom, and for reasons unclear to me at the moment, a vial of lavender. Um, and all of these things I keep in a mini fly fishing tackle box that can just get tossed in whenever I'm traveling someplace and think I might want an altar. And I can add and remove things as I want to. So that is uh, altars. Yay! I love that you stress how important it is to to make it personal and to not that you don't have to have specific things that because I have seen so much gatekeeping. I mean, everything's got gatekeeping, but I have seen so much gatekeeping in. Oh yeah. And, uh, you know, I'll get angry emails about this, (laughs) which, you know, it's look, it's anything spiritual ought to be personal. Yep. And you can't tell somebody that their personal spirituality is incorrect if it's not harming somebody else. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I've never seen an altar that looks like mine. And that's because it's mine. Yeah. And so I I think that there's a lot of unnecessary pressure put on people to have a certain display or a certain item. And I mean, frankly, some practitioners aren't publicly practicing because they don't feel safe Mm -hmm. doing so. And so... If you need a teeny tiny setup like my little tackle box travel altar, use that and put it away and don't feel bad about it. Like that yep. is a per- perfectly valid. I saw an adorable little one made out of an Altoid tin. It was the cutest little yes. altar. Yes. Oh, I've so seen cute. them. And so I cute. I considered but I could not find um, glass files that were small enough diameter to, uh, for the tin to close. Gotcha. It yeah. happens. Ooh, and but, if you're listening and you have an altar, we'd like to see it if you yes, would so like to share it. Please share your altars with us because we are witchy and we, we love you. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. yes. Yeah. Okay, so I am going to talk candles. Um, yes, things what go on altars. Things what go often. on altars. Things that are handcrafted. Things mm-hmm. that are important parts of 
all the things. Um, so all of them. Yes, all the things. Uh, <laughs> they're multi-purpose. Uh, candles have a long and interesting history in religious worship, magic, and folklore. And they light the way to the sacred. They dispel forces of darkness. They're associated with ghosts and the dead. They can find buried treasure and they can play a role in incubating dreaming. Uh, <laughs> while they've been used as a source of light and to illuminate celebrations for more than 5,000 years, little is actually known about their origin, uh, which is really weird. But I feel like once you've got fire and find out that oil burns... Right. So the earliest uses hmm. of candles were my uh, my beloved ancient Egypts. <laughs> Egyptians. I know you love the ancient Egypt. I do. Uh, they made rush lights or torches by soaking the pithy core of reeds and melted animal fat. However, as rush lights have no wick, like a true candle, they're not considered the first. Uh well, they kind did, of the whole thing is a wick. <laughs> right? Well, they did actually... So, Egyptians were using wicked candles in 3000 BC, ah. but the ancient Romans are generally credited with developing the actual wicked candle before that by dipping rolled papyrus uh, that had been repeated... Uh, they, they dipped it repeatedly into melted tallow, which is animal fat, or, or human fat, uh, or beeswax. Uh, the resulting candles were then used to light their homes, to aid travelers at night, and then again in religious ceremonies. Historians have found evidence that many other early civilizations developed wicked candles using waxes made from available plants and insects. So uh, early Chinese candles are said to have been molded in paper tubes using rolled white rice paper for the wick and wax from an indigenous insect that was combined with seeds. In, huh. J in Japan, candles were made of wax extracted from tree nuts, while in India, candle wax was made by boiling the fruit of the cinnamon tree. Really? Yep. I had no uh, idea. Right? And uh, it also has uh, known that candles have played a super important role in early religious ceremonies. Mm -hmm. uh, specifically Hanukkah, which is the Jewish festival of lights. It centers on the lighting of candles, and it dates back to 165 B.C. Yes, when that oil lamp, it just did not burn it out. It did not burn out. Mm -hmm. uh, so, and, and actually, I, I really love Hanukkah. I think the whole yeah, thing is amazing. Yeah, me too. Um, there are several biblical re references to candles, and the emperor Constantine, our buddy, is reported oh no yep yeah uh has reported to have called for the use of candles during an easter service in the fourth century speaking of pagan holidays right over. <laughs> so uh cruising on up to middle ages uh most early western cultures relied primarily on candles rendered from animal fat uh, again, tallow, uh, which was a, uh, a major improvement actually came in the Middle Ages when beeswax candles were introduced in Europe because unlike animal-based tallow, beeswax burned purely and cleanly without producing a smoky flame, but it also smelled a shit ton better. Uh, oh, I bet. <laughs> beeswax candles were widely used for church ceremonies, 
But because they were expensive, very few individuals other than the wealthy could afford to burn them at home. Uh, Tallow candles were the common household candle for the Europeans. And by the 13th century, candle making became a guild craft in England and France. The candle makers, also known as chandlers, went from house to house making candles from the kitchen fats that were saved for that purpose, or they made and sold their own candles from small shops. Cool. Now, ancient people observed that candle flames revealed mysterious things. (laughs) By staring into a flame, one could enter into an altered state of consciousness and see gods and spirits or see the future. Yeah, don't say. <laughs> yeah, or just go cross-eyed and fall asleep. Uh, or late- burn your retinas. <laughs> right. The late Egyptians of about the 3rd century used lamps and possibly candles in a magic ritual for dreaming true or obtaining answers from dreams. Mm-hmm. So the individual retired to a dark cave facing south, uh, which, again, fire... Yeah. And sat and stared into a flame until he saw a god. Then he laid down. <laughs> any god? <laughs> just any god. Then he laid down and he went to sleep, anticipating that the god would appear in his dreams and uh, with the answers that he sought. Now, <laughs> why you wouldn't just ask the god when you saw the god, I'm not sure. But I'm not Egyptian, and if it worked for them, more power to them. You know what? I, who am I to question? Exactly. Ancient pagans used candles and lamps in religious observances and a practice that the Roman Christian theologian Tertullian vehemently protested as the use of candles or the useless lighting of lamps at noonday. Uh, So, (laughs) (laughs) what a party pooper. Uh, But by the 4th century, both candles and lamps were part of Christian rituals. But it was not until the later part of the Middle Ages from like 12th century on that candles were placed at church altars. The Catholic Church. Yeah. Those. Uh-oh. Yeah. You placing know, candles at the altar. Yeah. They got an altar. Right. <laughs> the uh, Catholic Church, they uh, totally embraced the use of consecrated holy candles and rituals of blessing and absolving sins See, and exercising water. Right, right, right. The altars are sounding more and more familiar. Right? Uh, which takes us to middle age, the Middle Ages. Um, and they also brought us witch hunts. <sighs> so during the witch hunts of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, Inquisitor's handbooks such as the Malleus Maleficarum, uh, which was from 1486... Prescribed holy candles as amongst those consecrated objects for preserving oneself from injury of witches. Uh, Farmers used holy candles. Like, bro, I'm not coming for you. Seriously, get over yourself. Uh, Farmers used holy candles to protect their livestock from danger and bewitchment because we got nothing. Also not coming for your cow. Seriously, like, what do we need a bewitched cow for? And if we do, what's that candle going to do? Come on. Uh, so according to the prevailing lore, during the witch hunts, witches were said to light candles at their Sabbaths as offerings of fealty to the devil, which, you know, uh, nope. who was who often portrayed as wearing a lighted candle between his horns. The witches lit their candles from the devil's candles. Sometimes he lit the candles and handed them to his followers because he was a nice guy, I guess. Uh, wow, which is how polite. Very gentlemanlike. 
which is also put lit candles in their brooms, which they rode through the air to their Sabbath. I would just like to say that those brooms were made out of corn and wood. I don't think they put candles in them. Um, um, but then again, you know, they, this is the same time period. No, this is way earlier. I, not long after that, people were putting lit candles in damn Christmas trees. Like, I don't. It's just a recipe for not not a good thing. A lot of things burn down. Also, but, if you're flying on a broom, it's going to blow the candle out. In fairness, I don't necessarily think the flying was meant literally so much <laughs> as figuratively. <laughs> but anyway, I, I would just like to know for just a moment how witches went from being like cool with the universe and earth spirits and whatever to being communing with the devil yeah like you just gotta light their candles i mean i have to say that that is not an interest of mine do you know how that happened well i do know yes (laughs) but that's that's a um, lot of propaganda so uh it was yeah. also believed that witches made pervu- per- perverse use of holy candles and burning curses on individuals. <laughs> uh, oh, at the same time? <laughs> right? Uh, so according to an English work, Dives and Poppers, uh, in 1536, it oft been known that witches, with saying of the paternoster and dropping of the holy candle in a man's step that they hated hath done his feet rotten of oh my right that That wasn't what i was expecting to rot right (laughs) exactly especially if we're talking about perverse perverse use so that takes us and if that wasn't dark enough because you know they gotta amp it up so they start out like witches they're kind of bad news and they're like dude now they're hanging with the devil to black magic yeah yeah and this is just because they knew shit right right because they could like maybe make your kid not die from a fever right but we must discredit the wise women yes over Uh, wise man yeah fucking patriarchy uh, so candles made of human fat were believed to contain life energy and were supposedly used in black in the black mass in the 17th century and in other black magic rituals. Adipose air! Adipose air. And uh, if you listen to our lovely episode uh, on grimoires, you will remember the Petite Albert, which is an 18th century grimoire. And that claims that a magic candle made of human tallow would disclose buried treasure. The, tre- <laughs> the treasure seeker took the candle into a cave or other subterranean location. When the candle began to sparkle brightly and hiss noisily, treasure was at hand. The nearer the treasure, the more intensely burned the candle until it went out at the exact spot. Treasure hunters Wait. were... <laughs> yes. I just remembered... In our episode on the catacombs. Catacombs, yep. 
they were making human tallow candles. Yep. I don't think they found much treasure. No. Nope. They found some bones. But yeah. So anyway. uh, the treasure hunters were advised to carry along lanterns with consecrated candles, not only for light, but to conjure the spirits of dead men who were said to guard the buried treasure. The spirits were to be summoned in the name of God and promised anything in order to help them find a place of untroubled rest. I do not want that job. That's a shitty field trip. I'm just saying. Uh, so at the turn of the 18th or 19th century, Francis Barrett, who was the author of The Magnus, also mentioned in the Grimmer episode, 1801, wrote that candles made of some Saturnine things, such as a man's fat and marrow, the fat of a black cat, or with the brains of a crow or raven, will be extinguished in the mouth of a man lately dead, while afterwards, as often as it shines alone, bring great horror and fear upon the spectators about it. You fucking think? What? <laughs> like, yeah, if... If you, that's just a given. That's like, hi, the sun is yellow and hot. I just, <laughs> I have a new rule. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> Do not make candles out of black cats and corvid brains. And if right. you must, don't stick them in the mouth of a dead guy. Even if they're ethically sourced, it's still not right. There's no reason. No reason. None. No, leave those cats alone. Seriously. I mean, you're not going to actually catch the crow because the crow is smart. (laughs) Right? The crow will catch you. It's just going to mess with you. Yes. But come on. Right. So that brings us to candles and the dead. (laughs) Oh. (laughs) (laughs) In folklore, candles have had strong association with the dead perhaps dating back to old Jewish customs later adopted by Christians of lighting candles for the dying and dead. A lit candle placed by the bedside of a dying person is believed to frighten away demons. One Jewish custom calls for keeping a lit candle for a week in a room where a person died, perhaps to purify the air. In American folklore, however, a candle burning in an empty room will cause the death of a relative. Uh, probably crap there's a candle burning in an empty room in my apartment right now yeah but that's american folklore and we're like german european we're bad at it so yeah uh superstitions about candles hold that a guttering candle means someone in the house is about to die and a candle that burns blue means right it's their job so i just think that's a bit silly okay that takes and us it means to... you didn't trim the wick properly. Seriously, like there's actual science yeah. behind that. Yeah, don't uh, get me started on wick trimming because I have <laughs> opinions. <laughs> I love you. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I have really strong opinions on wick trimming. Speaking anyway. of wick, that brings us to wick a uh, and practical magic. <laughs> Like that? Oh. <laughs> I'm just queen of shitty. <laughs> shitty, 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 shitty transitions. So, in uh, some Wiccan rituals, consecrated white candles are placed at altars and at the four quarters of a magic circle. 
If a ritual calls for it, candles can be placed at the points of a pentagram. Colored candles are used in many, many magical spells. Each color has its own meaning, which I'm going to get to in a bit. Uh, but as part of the preparation for casting a spell, candles are rubbed with anointing oil while concentrating on the purpose of the spell. The formula of the oil would be determined by the purpose of the spell often. And or you can write a spell on the candle and then burn it. So there's variations. The following are some of the energy vibrations and influences evoked by colors. Burning again the colored candles and magical work enhances the vibration of the colors. Yeah, and this is used through a lot of different witchcraft traditions, right. not this just This is Wicca. not specific to Wicca and yep. again there's probably variations but uh, oh so many yes (laughs) so white is for spiritual truth and strength purity and purification meditation um it's said to attract benevolent spiritual voices break curses and generally be a feminine principle and also kind of represent alchemy it's your basic starter candle for most things then we go into pink which is love and friendship Harmony, entertaining, morality, domestic tranquility, and also the sign of cancer. Red is for sexuality, strength, physical health, and vigor, passion, uh, protection. It represents the signs of Scorpio and Aries and its masculine principle in alchemy. Orange is courage, communication, solving of legal troubles, which is super (laughs) specific. And also I find it specific. Which I also find a little bit funny because, you know, orange is typically associated with the uniform in jail. Uh, Huh. Concentration, encouragement, and the sign of Taurus. Yellow is persuasion, confidence, and charm. Uh, It's also said to aid in memory and in studying. So if you're a school witch, get your yellow on. Uh, Also the signs of Virgo and Gemini. Green is healing, money and prosperity, luck, fertility, and the sign is Sagittarius, which I am. Uh, Blue is psychic and spiritual awareness, peace, prophetic dreams, protection during sleep, also the signs of Aquarius and Virgo. That's me! Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Purple is ambition, ruling authority, reversing a curse. Don't be cursing, people. Do not do it. No. Uh, speeding or he- summon demons. Don't do that. Seriously, either. don't fucking summon demons. Uh, speeding, healing, and illness. Extra power. The sign of Pisces. Uh, and then like lavender, purple is the sign for Le- uh sign of Libra. Gold is protection, enlightenment, masculine principle. The sun, sign of Leo. Silver, intuition, subconscious, feminine principle. The moon. Brown, protecting pets, solving household problems, attracting help in financial crises, the sign of Capricorn. Gray, stalemate, neutrality, cancellation. And then finally, black, loss, sadness, discord, releasement, negativity. Now, (laughs) I disagree. Black (laughs) is the candle that I burn most often for protection. Nice. Uh, also, did you know that there's angel magic? Yes, I did. Oh, my. And they use colored candles to work oh. with principal angels. Yeah. So, Han- is it Haniel? 
is red and pink. Michael is gold and yellow. Gabriel is white and silver. Raphael is green and orange. And Uriel is ice white and ice blue. Archangels represent. There you go. Power to the candles. So that is your quick trip through candles and candle magic. Which is a whole thing. It is a whole thing. Yes. Well done. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I was a little nervous, kid. I'm amazed that you managed to fit the archangels in there at the end. Well, you know, I just had to throw that in there because I yeah. discovered there's a whole section of Christian witches, which just kind of fascinates me. Oh, yeah. They, there's candle magic there. There's angel numbers. So. Um, it's... It's a lot. It's a thing. It's a thing. Yep. So, wow. I I think that we have pretty much covered the spooky season and the crafts that might get you into the spooky season mood. I'm pretty proud. Yeah. I think, we, I think it's pretty good. Pretty good intro to October spooky season. Yeah, so I think that might bring us to the weekly worst way to die. Indeed. All right, what's yours? So my weekly worst way to die is that, like, we're in a situation where there's no power and heat and light is needed and there's nothing else to make it from. So they're like, hey, you look like you got a lot of tallow. Let's make you into some candles. I mean, you could just cut off a bit. <laughs> just a bit. I, we've already been talking about learning how to suture. That's true. That is true. That is true. But yeah, that it would be a very... I don't... Yeah, I don't know how I feel about... Um, at least posthumously being turned into a candle. Yeah. I, I, I can't decide. Um, mine is tripping and falling on my ceremonial dagger. Oof. Yeah, Whoops. no, that is something that I would most likely do. Accidental um. blood spells. Never a good idea. <laughs> no, no, not at all. No. No, no. so... Uh, Oh dear! Uh, <laughs> Get a little choked up. I just—I'm very moved by my <laughs> uh, by my ceremonial dagger. <laughs> oh. On that note, do you want to be spooky internet friends? We are uh-huh. to be found on. You find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Bones and Bobbins. You can also hunt us down at bonesandbobbins.com. And we have a we do have a Pinterest where Bones and Bobbins on there, and each of our episodes has like a corresponding uh, kind of board to it that has some more articles and stuff in depth pertaining to those specific uh, episodes that we did. Whoa! So it does. It does. <laughs> Thank I did a you. Work. Uh, so I would, this one's going to be fun to add some crafty stuff to and to, um, but if you ever want, uh, to toss us a pin or, or just check that out to supplement what we've got going on in the episode. Yep. Bones and Bobbins on Pinterest. Excellent. 
And don't forget, while you're roaming around the internet, to rate and review this podcast. It pleases the internet gremlins, and it's how we show up in recommendations so that other morbid souls can find us. Bring forth the morbid souls! Yes, please. Also, it just makes us feel good about ourselves. It does. Give us an ego boost. (laughs) We need one. (laughs) Even though I mispronounce everything, that I'm still doing a good job. (laughs) You're doing fine. Oh, thank you. I appreciate you. I appreciate you. (sighs) And on that note, let us leave you with some advice that you should never, ever forget. Lock your doors. And don't run with scissors. Each episode of the Bones and Bobbins podcast is written and researched by Haley Pearson Cox and Natalie Hoyce. Our music was composed by Loyalty Freak Music. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Bones and Bobbins. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or check us out wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so you won't miss a minute of our strange and creepy content.